Welcome back to The Law, and I am D.K. Williams, and this is episode 23, City of Castle Rock, Colorado versus Jessica Gonzalez. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And remember, follow me on Twitter at BlueCarp and on Facebook.com slash BlueCarp. Always happy and love to continue the discussion in those places. Let me know what you think. If you've got any comments or questions or suggestions for future episodes, I would love to hear from you. This one is actually from a suggestion, the City of Castle Rock case. Before we get into it, I just want to thank my friend Tom Cranawitter over at SpeakeasyIdeas.com for helping me get started with a an official Blue Yeti mic which I've used for the last 22 episodes of The Law. It worked so well, I purchased my own, along with some other cool podcasting equipment for the neophyte like me. Got my little flexible boom scissor stand that will attach to my desk. Got a pop filter now, which makes it look really cool, and headsets to go with the whole thing. So I'm still a neophyte, but I've got some of my own personal equipment now, so maybe I can start getting better at this. Go check out speakeasyideas.com. Let them know that you appreciate it. Check out their great content and programs. Tell them. D.K. Williams sent you over there. All right, for the city of Castle Rock, Colorado, versus Jessica Gonzalez. This is a 2005 case, so about 14 years old, a 7-2 to two decision that held that the holder of a restraining order, in this case, Jessica Gonzalez, cannot sue the police under a due process claim for the state's failure to actively enforce the order and protect her and her children from violence. So who are the parties in this case? The city of Castle Rock is a town in Douglas County, Colorado. The police department is exactly 23.3 miles from my house where I'm recording this right now in the southern part of Denver proper, according to Google Maps. So it's not far from where I am at all. I go to Douglas County quite frequently, which is where Castle Rock is. Castle Rock's on the front range, close to the Rocky Mountains, not in the Rocky Mountains, which a lot of people back east mistake Denver for being in the Rocky Mountains. No, Denver and Castle Rock and many other cities are right, are close to the mountains. We can see them from here, but we are not in the mountains. Interstate 25, which goes north and south, runs right through Denver. Going south, it runs right through Castle Rock. And according to Wikipedia, it is described as an affluent municipality, and that is accurate. has about 60,000 residents, and it is a little bit higher than the Mile High City. Of course, Denver has an elevation of exactly one mile, 5,280 feet above sea level, and Castle Rock is slightly higher, 6,224 feet. Now you know everything you need to know about Castle Rock, Colorado. Jessica Gonzalez lived in Castle Rock. She was a divorced mother of three daughters, and she had a restraining order issued against her ex-husband and father of her daughters. She brought this case individually and as next best friend, that's a legal term, on behalf of her deceased minor children. Her children were Rebecca Gonzalez, Catherine Gonzalez, and Leslie Gonzalez. They were only 10, 9, and 7. So the father ignored the restraining order, killed the children, before dying himself in a shootout with Castle Rock Police at the Castle Rock Police Station. Pretty grim story. Sometimes this case is cited for the proposition that the police have no duty to protect you. That language isn't exactly in the case, but that is the effective result of this decision. Now, a city could pass a, a regulation or a state could pass a bill specifically saying that the police have a duty to enforce all restraining orders and that they will be held strictly liable for any harm done to the protected person by the restrained party. But a legislature or a city council is never going to do that. Police would, in effect, have to provide 24-hour security for someone who's 
protected by such an order. Perhaps they'd have to have constant surveillance on the person being restrained. Resources necessary for something like that would be massive, and it's not going to happen. Theoretically, it could, but practically, it ain't. So the Supreme Court says there's no such duty, or that Ms. Gonzalez, in this case, had no legal recognized property right to such protection by the police. We'll get in, into the details, of course. But let's talk about who wrote the opinion. Who were the seven in the majority? Antonin Scalia wrote the case, appointed by Ronald Reagan. He was joined by Chief Justice William Rehnquist, who was appointed to the court originally by Richard Nixon, but then bumped up to Chief Justice by Reagan. Sandra Day O'Connor joined Scalia, appointed by Reagan. Anthony Kennedy, also in the majority, appointed by Reagan. David Souter, who was appointed by H.W. Bush, Clarence Thomas, the same, and Stephen Breyer, who was appointed by Bill Clinton. There was a separate concurrence uh, written by Souter and joined by Breyer, but the dissent was two folks, John Paul Stevens, appointed by Gerald Ford, a Republican, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, appointed by Bill Clinton. Take that for what it's worth. Since these days we've got a lot of attention being paid to the Supreme Court and who's going to be on it, who's recently been appointed, who might be appointed next. Just because a Republican nominates somebody doesn't mean they're going to always be in favor of the Constitution or vice versa. Or make rulings that we consider, with air quotes, conservative or progressive. Doesn't always work out that way. From Oyez.com, and I've got the link in the case notes for you, Jessica Gonzalez requested that restraining order against her estranged husband. A state trial court issued the order, and it prohibited the husband from seeing Gonzalez or the three daughters except during prearranged visits. A month later, after the restraining order had been issued, Gonzalez's husband abducted the three children. Jessica Gonzalez repeatedly urged the police to search for and arrest her husband, but the police told her to wait until later in the evening, see if her husband brought the kids back. During the night, the ex-husband murdered all three children, opened fire inside the Castle Rock police station where police shot him and killed him. Gonzalez, Jessica Gonzalez brought a complaint in federal district court alleging that the Castle Rock police had violated her rights under the due process clause by willfully or negligently refusing to enforce her restraining order. Now, the due process clause states, and this is the one in the 14th Amendment, no state shall deprive any person of life liberty or property without due process of law. The district court, federal district court, dismissed that complaint, ruling that there was no principle of substantive or procedural, and we'll talk about two differences at least briefly, no substantive or procedural due process claim that would allow Gonzalez to sue the local government for its failure to enforce a restraining order. On appeal, a panel of the Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit found that Gonzalez did have a legitimate procedural due process claim. That was a three-judge panel of the Tenth Circuit. The entire Tenth Circuit agreed to hear the whole thing. That's called rehearing it on bonk. It could be all of the judges, not just the three who heard it at first. And the full Tenth Circuit agreed that Gonzalez did have a protected property interest in the enforcement of the terms of her restraining order, and the police violated that. The U.S. Supreme Court overturned that and said, no, she does not. So with that 7-2 decision, court ruled that Gonzalez did not have a constitutionally protected property interest. And we're going to talk about this. A property interest isn't that kind of a strange way to go about it? But she did, and there's a reason for it, and we'll talk about it. No protected property interest in the enforcement of a restraining order, and therefore could not claim that the police had violated her right to due process. In order to have a quote-unquote property interest in a benefit in something like a restraining order, the court ruled that Gonzalez would have needed a legitimate claim of entitlement to the benefit. Scalia found that state law here in Colorado didn't provide such a legitimate claim of entitlement. 
did not require any specific mandatory action by the police, and it only provided ground for the police to arrest the subject of the order. It allowed for them to do it. It didn't require them to do it. What exactly the police will do is going to be up to the, to the discretion of the police. Supreme Court said, quote, this is not the sort of entitlement out of which a property interest is created. Therefore, Gonzalez had no property interest, and the due process clause was inapplicable. All right, so that's your basic overview, but let's get into the case itself and some of Scalia's words and what they mean. So Scalia introduces the, ca the case thusly on page one of the case, of the opinion. We, meaning the Supreme Court of the United States, we decide in this case whether an individual who has obtained a state law restraining order has a constitutionally protected property interest in having the police enforce the restraining order when they have probable cause to believe it has been violated. Of course, the answer no. So in this case, respondent, that's Jessica Gonzalez, alleges that the petitioner, in this case it's the town of Castle Rock, violated the due process clause of the 14th Amendment when its police officers, acting pursuant to official policy or custom, fails to respond properly to her repeated reports that her estranged husband was violating the terms of a restraining order. The restraining order had been issued by a state trial court several weeks earlier in conjunction with the divorce proceedings. The original order, and these are on pre-printed forms, and the court notes that. So the original order issued in May 21, 1999, said that the ex-husband, quote, could not molest or disturb peace of Jessica Gonzalez or of any child, and to remain at least 100 yards from the family home at all times. The bottom of the pre-printed form noted that the reverse side contained, and this is in all caps, so you know it's important on the form, important notices for restrained parties and law enforcement officials. So you have to flip to the back and see what those important notices are, right? It says, again, in all caps, a knowing violation. And they have to say no. Well, they say knowing because you can accidentally violate the terms of a restraining order, and that's not illegal. For instance, if you go to a grocery store, your ex-wife just happens to be in the same store. You've got no idea she's in there. You could be easily within 100 yards of her and not even know it. You could never know. So that would not be a violation. So here we go. Back to the all caps pre-printed form on the restraining order, right? Because I think it makes it more likely that the person won't violate it if they print stuff in all caps, right? A knowing violation of a restraining order is a crime, all caps. A violation will also constitute contempt of court. You may be arrested without notice if law enforcement officer has a probable cause to believe that you have knowingly violated this order. Note that it says you may be arrested. Not that that's particularly important to the Supreme Court's decision, but it is important enough for them to quote this. The pre-printed text on the back of the form also included all in all caps, right? It's kind of ridiculous. Notice to law enforcement officials. Part of that said, you shall use every reasonable means to enforce this restraining order. You shall arrest, or if an arrest would be impractical under the circumstances, seek a warrant for the arrest of the restrained person when you have information amounting to probable cause that the restrained person has violated or attempted to violate any provision of this order, and the restrained person has been properly served with a copy of this order, which he was. So it says the police shall arrest. And we'll get into that. How do you arrest someone who's not there, who's not physically within reach? So that original restraining order was issued not too much longer later. The state court modified the terms of the restraining order and made it permanent. So now it's no longer a temporary restraining order. It's a permanent restraining order. But it did give the husband the right to see the kids alternate weekends, two weeks during the summer, and upon reasonable notice, the modified order also allowed him to visit 
the home of the kids to collect the children for parenting time. They don't call it custody anymore, at least not in Colorado. They call it parenting time. All right, now Scalia setting up that legal background about the divorce and the restraining orders and the parenting time set up the horrifying day, how it went down. According to the complaint, at about 5 or 5.30 on Tuesday, June 22nd, 1999, respondent's husband, so that's Jessica Gonzalez's ex-husband, took the three daughters while they were playing outside the family home. No advance arrangements had been made for him to see the daughters that evening. When respondent, Jessica, noticed the children were missing, she suspected the ex-husband had taken them. At about 7.30, she called the Castle Rock Police Department, which dispatched two officers. The complaint continued. When the officers arrived to talk with Jessica, she showed them a copy of the temporary restraining order, which was now permanent, and requested that it be enforced and the three children be returned immediately. The officer stated there was nothing they could do and suggested that she call the police department again if the three children did not return home by 10. All right, now what else could they have done, really? Uh, they could have gone to his house, or were they, you know, his last known address and checked. Other than that, I'm not sure what else they could have done, but they didn't do that. They could have put out some kind of advisory, I guess, to look, to look out for him, put it over the radio. But if he wasn't home, and he didn't get caught for some minor traffic violation, or some type of violation, I'm not sure they would have found him, even if they had done something, but they didn't. The Supreme Court continues. At approximately 8.30 p.m., respondent talked to her husband on his cell phone. He told her that he had the three children at an amusement park in Denver. She called the police again and said, hey, have someone check for her husband or his vehicle at the amusement park. And she said, put out an all points bulletin for her husband. But the officer with whom she spoke refused to do so, according to the complaint, again telling her to wait until 10 o'clock and see if her husband returned the girls. Now, they've got reason to believe he might be at Elitch Gardens. I'm assuming that's what he was talking about, because that's the biggest one in Denver. Could have been somewhere else, but the biggest one they might they could check. It is a big place. How many law enforcement officers do they send? And actually, they're in Castle Rock. If he's in Denver, now they have to get the Denver police involved. Do they look for his car, you know, the, the ex-husband's car? If they find it, do they stake that car out and wait for him to return? What do they do? Do they, do they send someone inside to go look for him? I don't know. I mean, maybe that's all reasonable. But they didn't do any of that. And what if he was lying? What if he really wasn't there? What if that was just a diversion? I'm just playing devil's advocate. So what could the police have actually done? Because we know he eventually kills these daughters. And at this point, they might already be dead. We don't know. He could be lying about that. The day continues, as Scalia describes it. At approximately 10.10 p.m., respondent called the police and said her children were still missing. But she was now told to wait until midnight. She called at midnight and told the dispatcher her children were still missing. She went to her husband's apartment and found nobody there. Called the police at 12.10 in the morning. She was told to wait for an officers to arrive. When none came, she went to the police station at 12.50 and submitted an incident report. The officer who took the report, quote, made no reasonable effort to enforce the TRO or locate the three children. Instead, he went to dinner. That's in the complaint. Pretty horrible picture, right? All right, then this is when it really gets horrible. At approximately 3.20 in the morning, so just a couple hours after the mother had gone to the police station, the husband is at the police station, opened fire with a handgun he had purchased earlier that evening. Police shot back, killed him. Inside the cab of the pickup truck, they found the bodies of all three daughters whom he had already murdered. Pretty horrible. One's got all kinds of, of sympathy for this horrendous, heinous crime that was committed here. But we can have sympathy and still question whether or not the police could have done anything about this. Because like I talked about it, if the, if the kids had been killed earlier in the afternoon or even just minutes before he got shot, it makes a big difference. So if they had been killed earlier in the day before even Jessica had made any calls, 
none of those calls would have mattered. In tort law, there's got to be a proximate cause of the negligence that leads to the damage. Because you can be negligent, but if it doesn't cause any harm, there's nobody can sue you, right? You can blatantly run a red light, but if you don't hit anybody and nobody else is in the intersection, nobody else even notices, okay, well, you you were negligent, but nobody's going to can sue you because you didn't cause any damage. So if the police were horrific here under a tort analysis, that negligence doesn't necessarily mean it led to these children's death. Scalia continued on. On the basis of those factual allegations, respondent brought an action under Section 1983 of the U.S. Code, Title 42, claiming that the town had violated the Due Process Clause because its police department had an official policy or custom of failing to respond properly to complaints of restraining order violations and tolerated the non-enforcement of restraining orders by its police officers. The complaint also alleged that the town's actions were taken either willfully, recklessly, or with such gross negligence as to indicate wanton disregard and deliberate indifference to respondent civil rights. A lot of that language you have to throw in there pursuant to the statute and case law, but she's got a legitimate argument, I believe, so there's certainly nothing wrong with making this argument. Before the city of Castle Rock answered the complaint. They filed a motion to dismiss under what is Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 12b-6. I know none of you care about that, but that means they fail to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. Basically, even if everything that the complaint says is true, it's still not a claim you can sue under, recognized by a, a statute or common law. So it's like, all right, everything they stated, let's assume it's all true. They still can't sue on it. So that's what a 12b-6 motion is. And the district court granted that motion, concluding that whether construed as a substantive due process or a procedural due process claim, and again, we'll talk about that for a minute because it's kind of ridiculous. Respondent's complaint failed to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. Even if everything she says is true, can't sue. So it was dismissed at the trial court level. She appealed and went to the Tenth Circuit three-judge panel, who affirmed that part of it said that the substantive due process claim was no good, had to kick that part out, but that the procedural due process claim was cognizable, was legitimate. So let's get into this briefly about substantive due process versus procedural due process. And again, note, the 14th Amendment talks about due process. It doesn't say substantive due process and procedural due process. Those are things the Supreme Court have added to it. The Fifth Amendment also talks about the due process, but the Fifth Amendment originally didn't apply to the states. The 14th Amendment specifically applied to the states. Millions of pages have been written about substantive, even with an extra syllable in there, and procedural due process. All right, but here's a short explanation from Legal Beagle. Dot com. They do just about as good a job as anybody on this, just kind of laying out the basics. The Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments of the U.S. Constitution contain clauses that the government cannot take away your life, liberty, or property without due process of law. This language limits the ability of federal, state, and local governments to pass and enforce laws, regulations, policies, and rules unless they are fair and not arbitrary. Two forms of due process, again, made up by the courts, substantive and procedural. Substantive due process looks at whom the law will impact and what impact the law will have. Procedural due process looks at how the law is implemented and enforced. All right, again, I know that probably means nothing to most people who haven't had their brain corrupted with a legal education, and it doesn't mean much to those that have. But there you go. Just good enough for our purposes today. Go on hearing, on bonk, like we talked about, all the appellate judges got together, and... They reached the same disposition. Jessica Gonzalez had a protected property interest in the enforcement of the terms of her restraining order and that the town had deprived her of due process because the police never heard nor seriously entertained her request to enforce and protect her interests in the restraining order. From there, the U.S. Supreme Court took the case. Scalia lays out the issues. He says, The 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution provides that a state shall not deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. 
And again, remember the 14th Amendment specifically applies to the states. It says it specifically in there. No state shall. Unlike the Bill of Rights, or as you guys know, or the Bill of Restrictions of Government Power, did not apply to the states originally. Congress intentionally addressed the 14th Amendment to the states after the Civil War. The idea was to stop state-sanctioned discrimination and worse against former slaves and their offspring. Scalia went on. Congress has created a federal cause of action for the deprivation of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution and laws. Respondent, that's Jessica Gonzalez, claims the benefit of this provision on the ground that she had a property interest in police enforcement of the restraining order against her husband, her ex-husband, really, and that the town deprived her of this property without due process by having a policy that tolerated non-enforcement of restraining orders. Okay, a horrible thing happened here. Horrible. To these three young children. But there's some really evil, bad people in the world, and no law is going to stop evil. We need to do away with this notion that, that laws do this. For instance, we need drug laws to stop people from doing drugs. That's asinine. Or we need gun laws to stop people from using guns to commit violence equally as asinine. Laws are only a way to punish people who do things after they do them. Self-defense is better than waiting around for the police to show up to draw their chalk outline and take a report. We have to deal with the reality. No law can stop someone who's intent on harm. If some human being, like a psychopathic ex-husband, wants to beat you up or kill your kids or something horrible, something else horrible, there are no magic laws or words you can recite or pass in legislation that's going to stop that person. The Supreme Court continues, noting that in an earlier case it had dealt with, they held that the so-called substantive, I keep using that extra syllable, the substantive component of the Due Process Clause does not require the state to protect the life, liberty, and property of its citizens against invasion by private actors, so by bad guys, by criminals. So they've already dealt with that part about substantive due process, and now in this case they're dealing with procedural due process. And in other words, when it comes to the substantive part of due process, the police have no duty to protect you. And think about it. If the police did have that duty, every time a crime was committed, the police would have violated their duty to protect you. We know they don't have that duty. Yet sometimes we pretend they do. Let's stop pretending with that. This ties in directly with the Second Amendment. Now, if you think somehow the police not only have the duty they don't, but the ability they don't to protect you, then maybe you think no mere citizen needs a gun to protect himself. Because you believe in a fantasy that the police not only have the responsibility, but the ability to protect you. Those, both of those things are wrong. Factually incorrect. Or if you believe in that fantasy, you might say nobody needs a gun. For the third time today, I shall describe such a belief as asinine. So the Supreme Court has already said prior to this Jessica Gonzalez case, no due process claim when it comes to substantive due process. And then in addressing Jessica Gonzalez's claim about procedural due process, they say, I correctly, I believe that, quote, the procedural component of the due process clause does not protect everything that might be described as a benefit. To have a property interest in a benefit, a person clearly must have more than an abstract need or desire and more than a unilateral expectation of it. He must instead have a legitimate claim of entitlement to it. Okay, now remember back, we discussed Social Security in Nestor v. Fleming. You have no legit claim to Social Security benefits, and you have no legit claim of entitlement to police protection. Supreme Court went on, our cases recognize that a benefit is not a protected entitlement if government officials may grant or deny it in their discretion, just like, all together now, Social Security. 
Supreme Court then gets into the Colorado statutes and what the police are required to do, how much discretion they have to do, and how the Tenth Circuit incorrectly used legislative history. That is excellent because it gives me another chance to talk about how stupid using legislative history is. The Tenth Circuit quoted one lawmaker, one lawmaker, and in Colorado there are 100 legislators. One out of 100 is irrelevant. That should be obvious on its face. 1% relevant, maybe which is irrelevant, and that's assuming he's being sincere. But we know sometimes legislators are not in, are not sincere. They exaggerate to make a point, either in favor or against a pending bill. The words of one legislator are meaningless. One could cherry-pick statements from any of the 100 legislators to support just about any conclusion. Statutes do not speak via the mouth of one legislator, or two, or ten. They speak only via the words on the paper of the bill past. The end. If those words are unclear, the legislature has failed, and it is not within the purview or the power or the legitimate authority of the court to fix it. The legislature has to fix that. The court has to enforce it as it is written. Alas, they usually do not. But at least in this case, the Supreme Court points out that the use of the one legislator's comments by the Tenth Circuit was not compelling, let's say. And for my Colorado peeps, this legislator was quoted in a transcript of House Judiciary Proceedings on a particular bill. I know lots of people that testify at these things, so you know exactly the probably one of the rooms it took place in, and you know <laughs> the kind of things that get said in those rooms. So back to the Jessica Gonzalez case, Scalia in the majority opinion referred to part of the Tenth Circuit, the Tenth Circuit opinion that said any other result where it said she had a claim would render domestic abuse restraining orders utterly valueless. Allow me to add, yes, they are. Now, the Supreme Court says they're not utterly valueless, and, in, and I know what they mean. What they're saying is they're not utterly valueless if the person being restrained gives a crap about being punished later. So many do. Probably most do. But if they don't, like this guy, Jessica Gonzalez's ex-husband, a piece of paper ain't going to stop them. They are, in like a case like that, a case like we're discussing here, they are utterly valueless. But they're not if the person cares about being, being in trouble. And that is most people. They don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to be in jail anymore. Galea continues, We do not believe that these provisions of Colorado law truly made enforcement of restraining orders mandatory. A well-established tradition of police discretion has long existed with apparently mandatory arrest statutes. In other words, police have discretion. Of course they do. They're not going to arrest everyone who has committed a crime. That would be impossible. And part of that problem is we have so many laws. Scalia goes on, he's talking about this discretion that law enforcement has. He says, the deep-rooted nature of law enforcement discretion, even in the presence of seemingly mandatory legislative commands, is illustrated by another case, Chicago v. Morales, which involved an ordinance that said a police officer shall order persons to disperse in certain circumstances. This court, the U.S. Supreme Court, rejected out of hand the possibility that the mandatory language of the ordinance afforded the police no discretion. The court proclaimed simply common sense that all police officers must use some discretion in deciding when and where to enforce city ordinances. And, I mean, that's completely legitimate, right? I mean, it makes perfect sense. And what does that law enforcement discretion mean? It means you can't rely on it. Police can either do it or not. And you guys know I'm no stranger to criticizing law enforcement, but they cannot stop all crime. They can hardly stop any of it. So again, this statist notion that passing law stops crime is asinine. That's the word of the day. Scalia goes on. He says, It is hard to imagine that a Colorado peace officer would not have some discretion to determine that, 
Despite probable cause to believe a restraining order has been violated, the circumstances of the violation or the competing duties of that officer or his agency counsel decisively against enforcement in a particular instance. The practical necessity for discretion is particularly apparent in a case such as this one, where the suspected violator is not actually present and his whereabouts are unknown. Yeah, right. Absolutely right. You can't arrest someone you can't find. And using the resources to find him is up to the discretion of the law enforcement agency, so you can't cannot rely upon it and you have no legitimate claim to that protection. As Scalia put it, even in the domestic violence context, it is unclear how the mandatory arrest paradigm applies to cases in which the offender is not present to be arrested. If they order you to arrest someone and he's not there, you still can't arrest him, which is what we have here in this, this horrific case. So I think this, this case, this Jessica Gonzalez case, town of Castle Rock, demonstrates how this, the, this concept that they had to rely upon here, that, that a protective order is property, doesn't hold up. The metaphor doesn't hold up. The order is a promise to punish someone for violating it. It's not a promise that the person will be physically kept from doing it, right? The police order cannot physically stop a bad guy from harming you, even if there's a protective order in place. What that protective order says will punish that guy who does it. So contracts are promises that are property. You have a property right in a contract, and they're legally enforceable. I promise to bring you a box of widgets, and you promise to give me $100 for them. If I bring you the box of widgets, the court will make you give me 100 bucks. Or at least I'll get a judgment against you for the $100. But a restraining order promise isn't the same thing. It's not a contract. It's an order, a stick. If the third party does X, he will be punished. The property metaphor, contract metaphor, none of that works. Or as Scalia put it, even if we were to think otherwise, concerning the creation of an entitlement by Colorado, it is by no means clear that an individual entitlement to enforcement of a restraining order could constitute a property interest for purposes of the due process clause. Such a right would not, of course, resemble any traditional conception of property. Exactly, it's a stretch. So the Supreme Court concludes, therefore, that respondent did not, for purposes of the due process clause, have a property interest in police enforcement of the restraining order against her husband. And you and I, my friends, don't have a property interest in police protection either. The police have no duty to protect you. The police have no duty to stop crime because barring some random event they happen to walk into, they don't stop crime. Let's acknowledge that. It's their job. It's the police jobs to show up after a crime has been committed, draw a chalk outline, and write a report. So the Gonzalez versus the City of Castle Rock case lays out that the police do not have an affirmative duty to protect you. That means you protect yourself and you protect each other. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 23, The City of Castle Rock, V. Gonzalez. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Find me on Twitter. Follow me there, at BlueCarp, and on Facebook.com, slash BlueCarp. Let me know what you think. Give me any ideas about future cases. Government is not a tool of liberation. It is a tool of oppression. Freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously. 